When is the end of the age of oil and gas? When is the transition going to come? There's a debate. People say as soon as 10 years, people say as long as 100 years, but everybody agrees it's coming. Then once you can see when that day is, the price of oil and gas goes into a decline and doesn't recover because everybody can see the end at which the end of its useful life. And so one thing that really concerned me was how far behind we are getting in renewables, because I think we do risk precisely as you said, priding ourselves on being leaders in the world as it used to be and being laggards in the world as it's going to be. Not just Saudi Arabia, but another friend was talking to me about the Samsung battery factor outside of Seoul, South Korea, and how far along they are in battery technology and how far behind we are. I just worry that another component of our short-term thinking will be to take some of the effort uh, to develop renewables, to not work as hard at that as we should be, because that's where the world is going. And we want to be leaders in that, not just leaders in yesterday's oil and gas. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you. Hear their struggles. And then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. Bethany made her name as the first journalist to predict Enron was overpriced, which meant going deep into the people and the numbers and understanding them, and then facing overwhelming criticism. Well, turns out she was right, but it must have been very tough. Now she's looking at fracking. She looks at the people and the numbers, and she makes sense of them here, and she wrote a short, colorful, informative book on it, which we talk about here. The short answer is that fracking does not make sense, except for some economic anomalies, but getting into more detail helps you understand the direction of this country, oil and gas being such a big part of it. If you want to influence fracking, environment is not the most effective lever to work with. Her book also helps you understand the short-term perspective of oil and gas in the energy industry. The U.S. has no energy policy, as other countries do. I finished the book pretty quickly and got a pretty good sense of the background. So listen for the intersection of leadership, economics, energy, and finance. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Bethany McLean. Bethany, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing very well. And I just read your book on fracking, and I want to get into that. But before we do... I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into writing the book that you wrote. Sure. So I'm a longtime journalist. I have been a journalist for over two decades now. And I'm a generalist journalist, meaning I write about a lot of different things. I've been a contributing editor at Vanity Fair for years. And one of my last pieces was on um, J-Lo and A-Rod, so long distance from uh, fracking. But I was always interested in what was taking place with fracking because of the environmental controversy about it, because it was at the same time arguably reshaping the world in which we live because the fascinating characters involved in it and because from a financial perspective this industry has never worked it's never made money and so there were all these just really big important things going on and I wanted to see if I could figure them out yeah it was 
Now, part of me wants to go about J-Lo and A-Rod because I read that article and the pictures were amazing. And the, it's, the connection is much, I would have expected it to be not to have the depth in the relationship, but we'll leave that for later. <laughs> and I kind of want to ask, there's another big article that you wrote a long time ago that was like a, a big article. Yeah. Can I ask about that? Or? You can start there if you want. So you wrote an article before something big happened and then something big happened. Yeah. So that was more luck, I would say, than anything else. Back in 2001, I was a pretty young journalist and I wrote a piece in Fortune, which I joked should win awards for the meekest title in business history because it was as Enron overpriced. Um, And that was about six months before Enron went bankrupt. So yes, Enron was in fact overpriced. And it was a pretty skeptical article about Enron and the first in a major publication saying what this company doesn't doesn't make sense. In the end, I've, it, it was not, I didn't say Enron's going to go bankrupt or this company is a fraud. I was actually too naive at the time to have guessed that that, would, that could have been the way this, this unfolded. But um, because so few people had been critical of Enron, the story sort of took on a larger than life significance in the whole Enron drama. And on your part, I would think even all the more so as a young reporter taking on this big thing, I guess you probably weren't thinking about taking it on. But that means that you must have, you said generalist, but you must have gone into some fair amount of depth and accuracy and people must have been checking your facts. And I would guess that that set you up for the book that I read had tremendous depth and you must have talked to a lot of people and gotten them to open up with you. And is that a theme of your journalism? You're not just superficially covering stuff. That's a really interesting question. Yes, I've been lucky because I've spent my career doing long-form journalism uh, for the most part, whether magazines or books. And those sort of projects by nature are immersive. You have to really dig in and really understand things. And I think when I was younger, my first, that piece about Enron was really financial. It was really heavily quantitative. And I, I was a math major in college and I spent a few years working in investment banking after college. And so I think at that stage of my life, I was really drawn to the numbers. That's where my focus was. And oddly enough, working on Enron and writing a book about it subsequently made me much more interested in the human dynamics as well. So now I'd say I'm I'm still very interested in the numbers, but I'm really interested in the people too. I want to explore the complexities of, of human nature because in the end, it's not very interesting when bad people do bad things or good people do good things, but when complicated people do things that are both good and bad, or when people who consider themselves good do things that turn out very badly, those I think are the most interesting stories. Yeah. you. I mean, you put a lot of personalities, one big personality in the fracking book, and I have the feeling that you probably didn't just choose anyone. He was a big figure. He sounds larger than life and just like plowing through no matter what comes through, like buy, or I guess he was selling. And did you pick him because he was the most colorful? Or did you pick him because he represent? my picture is that he represented the ups and downs of the industry and it gave a personal tone to it. Did I read that right? Yes, you read that perfectly right. There was another sort of selfish reason, which is that I was obsessed with this character, Aubrey McClendon, for years. Dating back to 2010, a guy I talked to a lot who's actually Australian, which is funny, but a close observer of the U.S., and he used to say, Aubrey McClendon is the most important man in America. And obviously, he was employing some degree of hyperbole, right? But what he meant by that is that if what McClendon was trying to do 
worked and McClendon was right and America had this cheap supply of natural gas for years into the future. That was going to change our manufacturing base. It could change geopolitics. It stood to really reshape things about, about the country. If McClendon was wrong, then the country would be on a, on, a, on a different course. And then McClendon is one of those great characters that you come across in, in business that literally proves that old adage, truth is stranger than fiction. And it's one of the reasons that I love writing about business so much because of these, these characters that you really just couldn't make up. If you were a fiction writer sitting down at your desk trying to invent a character, you, you wouldn't be able to come up with an Aubrey McClendon. And so I was fascinated with him. And then when I talked to people, they, they basically, Aubrey McClendon is not the guy who is sort of the technological um, pioneer of fracking, but he's the guy who figured out how to raise money, how to get investors around the world, literally around the world, to give their billions to fund U.S. fracking. And without all of that capital, this fracking revolution, for better and for worse, wouldn't, wouldn't have happened. And so he became, I wanted to tell this story that I thought hadn't been told, which was about how capital was such an important ingredient in fracking. And so he became the guy who uh, was synonymous with capital raising. Yeah, because it could have been a book about technology. It could have been a book about finance. It could have been a book about people. And you tie all these things together in a geopolitical way. Uh, and also American, I don't know. I, this is a, I had to look at the word wild, look up the word wildcatting, which was like fascinating. I didn't realize, I thought it had to do with wildcat, which I guess it did the origins of the word. And so it's just like back to the Texas of, of like James Dean era, still alive today. And there are a lot of things of like, of our production reaching levels since the seventies. It's, you really tied a lot together in a relatively short book. All right. So on the finance side, there's something that kept hitting me. Oh, one thing, why did they keep lending him money? I guess he kept hawking and hawking and hawking and things, which is like, how does this guy not sweating all the time? Maybe he was. Okay. Something that gets me is that there's very little in this culture that you were writing about of environment, anything, caring about the environment, about where this is going, about this stuff is going to run out someday. Now, I can understand the entrepreneurs thinking, I want to get rich quick, because there are a lot of people who, it's like they went out in the backyard, started doing stuff, and next thing you know, they're billionaires, which also reminds me of the oil, and you, you talked about Plainview, and, and what was it? Oh, there will be blood, uh, that era. And then I thought, well, all right, if they can flip things really quick, I can see why they wouldn't care about the environment because they can just get rich quick. But then shouldn't the finance people be factoring this into the equation? Your epilogue talked about it, but up until then, that was you putting your perspective. Is there really that little concern for where this is going or the environment? Well, I think there's a broad concern in the country about where this is going environmentally. And I think some people in the industry are are concerned and thoughtful about it. I'm not sure that's pervasive in the industry, but there certainly is some concern. But the fact that that part of the story is, is missing from this book has more to do with my book than it does to do with the widespread concern about fracking. Because this is a, a narrow book, it's, it's a mini book, it had to be by nature short. It had to take one aspect of this and explain it. And so I chose to focus on financial element angle for a few reasons. One is because I, it hadn't been covered well. People don't understand this. You think about fracking and you think these companies must be making boatloads of money. And the fact that it's actually quite financially fragile and probably wouldn't have come about if it hadn't been for the Federal Reserve's interest rate policy in the wake of the financial crisis. Those are things people don't really think about. So I thought that was that was fresh. But secondly, maybe maybe I'm cynical, but I also think that if something is going to bring fracking to an end, it's probably going to be because because the money dries up. 
in a world where people need and are willing to pay for hydrocarbons, I'm, I'm not sure environmental concerns are ever going to stop this. But if you are interested in the environment, there are a couple of really good books I would recommend that explore that side of things more than mine does. And one is a book that's very nuanced, very much pros and cons, called The Green and the Black by a guy named Gary Cernovitz, who's a venture capitalist in the industry. And he really tried to look at the environmental um, aspects of this. And then the other is a book I'm reading right now by a New Yorker writer called Amity and Prosperity, which is a look at the effect of fracking on one family and and the health complications they suffered as a result of living near um, a site where fracking was being done. So the fact that it's not in my book is not, it's neither a comment on how important it is, nor I think a comment on how important people think it is. It's, it was the scope and structure of this book. Does that make sense? Yeah, you focused on a bunch of decision makers. And yeah, I get that fracking is really important. I think it's not allowed in New York State because even though there's a lot of potential that they could get and who knows what's going on in Alaska, which I guess wouldn't be fracking, but that would be, anyway. But you were looking at the decision makers and I feel among the decision makers, it's not really a concern. I think that's probably true. And you could look, although there is a difference between the big oil companies who are increasingly environmentally responsible and at least thinking about climate change and thinking about what they can do to um, mitigate the effects of, of what they do. There's a difference between that and the smaller companies, the, the Chesapeake's of the world as they were back in the day, whose incentive is just to produce as much of this stuff as quickly and hopefully as cheaply as, as they possibly can. And I think that is a larger tale of, of business in America that it too often today is done from a short-term perspective rather than a long-term one that really takes into account communities, the cost of the environment, employees, and their well-being. And so I think perhaps in oil and gas, it's even more pointed that there is this very short-term focus on shareholders, on making money. But I think that's a larger comment on the state of business in general. I think you just explained, again, why you took the focus that you did. And I, I guess you're kind of looking at this could be the Achilles heel, or probably is the Achilles you're, you're revealing the Achilles heel. Thank you. That's a perfect way of putting it. Um, <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. Oh, use it in good health. <laughs> I didn't make it up. It's been around for thousands of years. You'll hear me say it in subsequent speeches, but that, that, that's exactly it. Yes. And I mean, other Achilles heels are that, you know, it's the, the carbon emissions. And actually, you close the book. There were a couple of things that I looked at your book as, a, as a, the structure of the book, and I felt like the opening and closing really nailed it. But the end of your epilogue said, it was a quote from the New York Times saying, institutionally, Congress seems incapable of examining the energy independence issue in its broadest aspects and of writing an integrated energy policy that is internally consistent and consistent also with economic, foreign policy and environmental plans. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's like a really big problem because it, it made me also think of the of environmental issues when there's a systematic issue that is complex with lots of different things, our political system doesn't seem to handle it very well. I mean, it's so easy to get elected saying, you know, I got an easy fix, whether it's an easy fix or whether it will be effective or not. Is this, are we doomed to never be able to handle, this might be too big of a question for just your book, but is this, is this too complex an issue for people to handle it? Because on an individual level, it's like, let's get rich. And we give individuals the freedom to do that. Right. Well, I think in, um, I think that's, 
you, you could ask what, what Congress is capable of handling today, even beyond energy policy. So yes, that is a very big question. But on energy policy specifically, America has never really had an energy policy to speak of. And I suppose you could argue in some ways, some of this is good because we also have um, a land where people own the mineral rights. That's one of the things that's enabled fracking because individuals can go and sell their mineral rights to big companies and make money from it. And so the opposition to fracking hasn't been, while it's been strident, people have, ordinary people have been able to make money from it. And so that's helped spur the boom in ways that it, that it wouldn't in other countries. But it also means that you have, you know, thousands of small producers out there doing what they can to produce oil and gas and sell it. And you don't have any way, like Saudi Arabia can say, okay, Aramco, national oil company, we are turning down your production by a million barrels a day. We, there's no mechanism in the U.S. to control production. And that way we can't go out to the thousand small producers and say, hey guys, it'd be better for the world and for America if you guys produced a million barrels less. It's just not the way it works here. And I could argue good and bad things about that. But I think what I what scares me a little bit is just our tendency to increasingly think that because the world is a certain way right now, that's the way it's going to be in the future. And so right now we are kind of chest beating about all this oil and gas we're producing and making the assumption that that's going to continue into the future instead of looking at the real weaknesses in this industry and the real issues and saying, okay, what are the risks to what it might be in the future? How can we plan a little better? So you've mentioned it's a boom with easy money, people are flipping, flipping land, uh, which you didn't say here, but you said in the book, and without looking to the future, that tells me bubble. But I don't think you use the word in the book. Do people use the word fracking bubble? Yes. So there are certainly people who would call it a fracking bubble. I think one of the fascinating things to me is that there are all these industries, not just fracking, where there's actually a battle going on on Wall Street, where there are people who believe and people who are really skeptical. Um, Elon Musk is a great example. There are believers and there are skeptics. And it's often an argument that is not in public view. And so that's true of fracking. There are believers who think that this industry is on the cusp of making profits, even though everyone would agree it has not to date. And there are others who argue that this is a giant bubble that is going to um, burst and when credit dries up and leave a lot of damaging things in its in its wake. And so there's there's very much this battleground going out. I think one of the humbling things to me in writing this book was that I set out to decide who was right and I actually couldn't at, at the end of it all because where this goes is dependent on so many factors, including not the least of which is the price of a barrel of oil, which is set by all sorts of events beyond anybody's control and anybody's ability to predict. So I don't have a great answer as to what the future is is going to bring. But I think there's a real question about what would happen if the capital funding this went away. If investors said, wait a minute, the returns aren't there. We're not willing to invest in this anymore. We're not going to give you the billions of dollars in debt you need. We're not going to invest in your companies. Then what would happen? How much oil and gas would America actually be producing? And I think the answer would be a lot less. And it sounds like enough companies have already lost billions. They have. I remember you were talking about the BHP, was it, in, in Australia? Like $7 billion. Did I, do I remember that right? Yes. And I'm like, how do you lose $7 billion? I mean, and how do you stay in business? And you, you touched on the personal aspect. And I want to get to that in a second. But let's look at the Saudi side. I should have mentioned the title of your book earlier. It's Saudi America. When I saw that written, I was like, ah, oh, that has a very uncomfortable feel to it. And there were a couple interpretations I had for it. And let me see if I, uh, I wrote it down. The, were you saying Saudi America? Oh, yeah, yeah. The ending quote from MBS. Can you remind me what MBS stands for? The Mohammed, Mohammed bin 
Salman, who is the young prince who has taken power in Saudi Arabia. And a lot of that has to do with the effect of lower oil prices on the kingdom of Saudi Arabia and resulting instability there and their need in the face of lower oil prices to remake their economy. And so that was one of the clearest examples of how low oil prices are creating change, not necessarily good change around the world. Well, one thing he's talking about is building a city that's going to be built on renewables. And is that serious? Is that, I mean, they have the money to do it, I guess, if, especially if the price of oil stays high. They don't necessarily. So it is serious. But um, since the book um, was finished, Saudi Arabia has announced they can't take their national oil company or called the Ramco, which is the world's largest producer of oil. They can't take it public after all. And the reasons why it's not really clear why, but I think they weren't willing to offer enough transparency. And I think there are worries among investors about how long the age of oil will, will last. So I think MBS is absolutely right about the need to transform Saudi Arabia's economy. It is completely reliant on oil. And if oil is going away in the future, then where does that leave Saudi Arabia? So he's completely right about it. But whether he can pull off this transformation is is a really open question. So that makes it sound like he's um, sincere about trying to make it happen. The question is, if they can't get the money from going public, then how will they do it? And the, one of the closing quotes of the book is, is him saying, I have 20 years to reorient my country. And I thought, all right, 20-year timescale, Americans don't, American politics don't work on that timescale. And I wondered if the title Saudi America, it kind of sounds like maybe we're becoming a dinosaur while a dinosaur, a fossil fuel thing is evolving to make itself work in the future. I mean, they got a lot of sunlight. Solar seems like it could work. Are we switching positions? Are we risking switching positions of a couple of people getting rich quick, living high for a little while? Meanwhile, others who can plan for the future do. Could we become the Saudi Arabia that's dependent on something while someone who is dependent becomes liberated from it? Is that conceivable? Is that what you're hinting at? That's that's exactly the right interpretation. And I think that that's the question because I was really shocked in talking to smart investors because I expected them, perhaps wrongly so, this was my own cynicism, to be really sort of uninterested in renewables because renewables are good from an environmental perspective, but all these smart investors would be like, yeah, but I can't make money. So what's that about? And instead, really smart investors are A, actively putting a lot of money into renewables. I don't know if you saw, but Apple just built a a wind farm in Iowa to support its data center there. And it's entirely powered by wind. And a friend of mine was talking to the Apple guy and was like, yeah, 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 you're Apple. You're just doing this because you have spare cash and you want to be environmentally friendly. And the Apple guy was like, no, 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 we're doing it because the wind is way cheaper than Mm -hmm. that. So the other part of the debate, and nobody knows the answer, but it's this ongoing question, when is the end of the age of oil and gas? When is the transition going to come? And there's a debate. People say as soon as 10 years, people say as long as 100 years, but everybody agree it's everybody agrees it's coming. And once you can see when that day is, the price of oil and gas goes into a decline and doesn't recover because everybody can see the end at which the end of its its useful its useful life. And so one thing that really concerned me was how far behind we are getting in renewables, because I think we do risk, precisely as you said, 
you know, priding ourselves on being leaders in the world as it used to be and being laggards in the world as it's going to be. Not just Saudi Arabia, but another friend was talking to me about the um, the Samsung battery factor outside of Seoul, South Korea, and how far along they are in battery technology and how far behind we are. And I just worry that another component of our short-term thinking will be to take to take some of the effort uh, to develop renewables to not work as hard at that as we should be, because that's where the world is going. And we want to be leaders in that, not just leaders in yesterday's oil and gas. Man, I'm like, where's the loyalty to the country? Is that about? <laughs> I, I mean, I'm thinking the loyalty missing from our, our, our leadership in DC because, well, okay. And now I'm going to editorialize a bit of like, what's driving me to do a leadership in the environment podcast is that I think what a big thing that's missing in this country for all that people say, I don't want to pollute, whether it's carbon emissions or methane emissions or plastic. Oh man, the amount of plastic that's coming out of all this shale. It's like every day I pick up at least one piece of trash from the streets and put it in a trash can. And the amount of garbage we produce is insane. And people don't even notice that they're doing it. And, or they, they feel helpless to do anything about it. And I'm curious, what I'm trying to do and what I think is missing is leading people to want to change, not to feel they have to, not to force into it, or just because it's, uh, yeah, a great change if it's economically in your interest to do so, by all means. But that's not really leadership. That's not really people acting on their values. It's just people trying to save money. I'm all for it. But if you can not get so much single-use stuff and not fly every chance you get, if demand decreased for a lot of the fuels, how would that affect, I presume that that would lower prices also. And that I think that would get people to switch over to renewables faster. If people were not flying as much, if I, I'm dreaming now, if I had a really big effect on the world and Americans were like, hey, I want to do what Josh did. I'm going to fly less, not because I have to, but because I'm going to enjoy my neighborhood and I'm going to pollute less. I'm going to use less fossil fuels. And if that happens on a nationwide scale, so if hundreds of millions of people start you know, maybe turn off the air conditioner a few times more than they, they would otherwise, maybe ride their bikes a little bit instead of cars and so forth, take public transportation and so forth. And would that significantly affect what's going on? It depends on what scale it happens, but it's a little bit complicated. There's a quote in my book that I feel like sums this up. And the quote is, there's a price that kills supply and a price that kills demand. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that if the price falls too low because people do all this, then oil and gas producers will stop producing as as much because they won't have the, the investment money will go away and they won't have the money to be able to produce oil oil and gas. So yes, it would have an effect in that way. On the other hand, there's also this that killing demand that if the price goes really, really high for oil, people's behavior changes. There's a price that kills demand. So people start driving less, people start economizing in various ways in order to save. And that there, there, most the conventional view is that higher prices will accelerate a move toward renewables more than lower prices will. Because at lower prices, people's self-interested behavior is, hey, this doesn't cost much money. Why not? If every plastic bag you bought came with a charge of $5, you'd probably say, oh, I'm not going to use that plastic bag. So that's what they mean by the price that kills demand. So you almost, if you believe that we want to accelerate a transition to renewables, you probably want a higher price rather than, rather than a lower price, at least in the short term. Well, that, that would motivate people to stop using stuff. Yes. The lower um, price will, motiv- will motivate companies to stop producing as much. Yes. Okay. Because if people stop using stuff out of principle, yes, that may be challenging. But, you know, in the 60s, people voluntarily did things that got them put in jail for, in principle. That wasn't like making their lives better in the short term. 
but it led to legislation and things like that. It led to people voting. And if demand decreased for other reasons, if people found that, their li- that they could improve their lives in ways that reduced their use of fossil fuels so that even if the prices dropped, they would still not use as much. So if we lowered demand from other reasons than price, then that would lower the development of more fossil fuels. That would lower the boom that's going on. That would lower the availability of capital. Yes, it would. Good to hear, because <laughs> that's what I'm trying to do. Yes, and, and I applaud you in trying to do that. I hope I'm effective. All right, so there's a personal side, it seems to me. You could have done a lot of different topics, and it, you seem to have gotten into this more than you had to. I mean, of course, as a journalist, you want, you want to do a good job, but I'm reading that there's something that makes this interesting to you. I mean, is, the, is covering an environmental thing just your beat, or is it just something you happen to pick, or is it something meaningful beyond that? I'm... I have, I've had such a random mix of things that I've written about over the years that I, I'm not sure there's any consistency, although someone was joking me, with me the other day that every one of my books could be entitled Shaky Ground. So Shaky Ground 1, Shaky Ground 2, because I guess I am, I am drawn to things where there's some kind of financial controversy about them, where there is something in the way something is being financed or in the economics of something that isn't making sense and isn't what people think and isn't working. And I guess that's probably the math major and the analyst in me that is drawn to try to figure out those things and try to arrive arrive at a conclusion about them. So I suppose that's probably part of it. I guess I had another personal interest in this, though. I did grow up in a part of the country that is the economy was always based on natural resource extraction, a part of the country called um, the Mesabi Iron Range in northern Minnesota, where the really um, only source of jobs was um, iron mining. And so I suppose that gives me a little bit more of an interest and perhaps a slightly different perspective on natural resource extraction. I'm more aware of it and what it is and and the jobs it can provide and the impact on a community when it's booming and when there's a bust than I might be if if I hadn't grown up where I did. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable, join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. There's a couple of things you said that I find really interesting. So you said earlier that you were humbled by not coming to a conclusion and you were looking and you just said now that you want to find a conclusion. How did that work out for you in this? It feels like you went through an emotional journey then too. Like you want something, you didn't get it, but that's humbling, which I think most people prefer to be humbled. Right. You do. And it's good. You have to have an impetus to figure something out. But in the end, I think you also have to be intellectually honest and not force an answer and not say, I don't like forced answers. I can't get there myself. I can't write honestly if I'm trying to say, I believe something when I don't actually believe it. So the book would have had a much neater packaging if I could have said, this is going to come to an end in a really ugly way. And here's how we should deal with the fact that this is going to end. Or it would have a different conclusion if I said, you know, this hasn't worked economically so far, but it's going to. And so this is how it's going to shake out. It's always easier to write if you have a clean narrative. And so it's upsetting from a, from a structural, from a story structuring place, not to be able to get, to get to an answer. But I think you also can't force it if you can't get there. And I couldn't in, in this place. So yeah, it made writing the book challenging and it leaves me with this sort of humbling, I set out to figure something out and I don't feel in the end that I, that I could. And I don't think to be clear, 
I don't think I couldn't figure it out because the answer is there and I just couldn't get there. I actually think it's, it's not clear. <laughs> so, but, um, but, but maybe it's the former, you never know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the price, it's like price of oil keeps, of natural gas and oil, all these things go fluctuating and everyone's, it's like the world's resources are trying to predict these things and no one can tell anything and no one can tell, should we produce more, produce less? It's actually the best thing in, in looking at all of this, that the one thing you can say about people's attempts to predict the history of oil prices is that they've all almost always been wrong. And so <laughs> it was actually a really fun thing to take away from this. It's like, oh, nobody ever gets this right. I feel listening to us talking, I feel like we're getting into some depth in this conversation, but you know, hopefully people who are listening to this, like read the book. It's really got richness and depth that will put what we're talking about, like much more context to it. Yeah, I, I was kind of interested in it. And then when I saw it wasn't going to be about what it, what like my take would be normally look at more of the environmental consequences, but then I wasn't, I didn't put the book down. So hopefully that'll sell a couple of books for you. <laughs> that's a lovely compliment. Another friend, he actually read it on the beach. And so I was like, oh my God, that's the first time in my life anybody has ever called, well, except for J-Lo and A-Rod. That's one of the first times in my life anybody has ever called something I've written a beach read. So I was very happy about that. I took it as a compliment. <laughs> yeah, as I said, I said, well, I would be happy for you if, if a couple of books sold. What I, it's really for the listeners that I think they'll enjoy the book. That that's why I think people should get it. So going back to what you said about northern Minnesota, wow, that sounds like a really cool place to grow up. When you think of that, the environment, is that, is that what you think of? Because I want to shift over to talking about the environment because it's the Leadership in the Environment podcast. Well, I think, I think I grew up in a place where the effect of mining on the environment was right there. Northern Minnesota, for instance, would naturally be a pretty flat place, but there are all these hills made out of the tailings from the iron mines, the extracts from, from the iron mines that just got piled up, creating all these hills, which eventually trees and grass grew on. And in high school, we used to go out to the um, cliffs, which were created by excavating iron ore pits in the abandoned mine and jump off the cliffs into the huge puddle, you know, the huge, you know, deep water below that had accumulated over, over the years of doing this. So I grew up in countryside that was literally shaped by, by mining. But it also, during the time I grew up with, along with the American steel industry, that the part of the country where I grew up and just went into sort of a prolonged bust from which it has never really recovered. So jobs lost, people unable to work. And you know, that the effect that's had on, on the community is, is pretty, pretty huge. So I suppose I have a, um, a nuanced view on the environment, both the short-term and a long-term view. I appreciate what this stuff does for, for, to provide jobs to people and provide income to people because it's, look, that's, it's, it's really important, but it also, there, there are risks to it because this sort of thing can go away as quickly as it comes and it can leave a community worse off than it was before, before the boom came. And so it's not an answer in and of itself. You know, we tend to think, like I said, it's this idea that because things are this way, they should be this way forever. So places where they're building plastic plants or people are making money from leasing their land to drilling companies, that seems like it'll go on forever, but it doesn't. The bus comes and then the jobs go away. So it's a short-term answer, but it's, but it's not a long-term answer, I think. I think about that too. Yeah, the way you put it puts a lot of context in what you wrote about because you can just see the idling equipment looking a lot like the landscape that you grew up in and it puts a more personal touch on that. Well, one of the things I do on this podcast is I ask people if leaders and influencers, journalists and authors, if they are interested in doing something to act on what, what about the environment they care about. And I wonder if you'd be interested in doing something that listeners could hear how it goes. And before we go any further... 
it's at your option. And there's a few things that I've learned that it's important. It, you don't have to fix all the world's problems all by yourself overnight. Because a lot of people think that's like too big of a thing. Uh, but it has to be some measurable thing that you do. It can't be telling other people what to do because there's enough people doing that already. But something, a measurable difference. And I, and I also find that it really doesn't matter how big it is because it's more about the doing and the skills that come from doing it. Anyway, would you be interested in taking on a challenge or, or acting on your values to sh- and share how the experience went? Sure. Well, I'm already, I've already started doing something, but I will do it more intentionally than I have done it to date because it's been a little bit haphazard. But what I'm trying to do is just be really, really conscious about the use of plastic. And so I've already um, outlawed plastic drinking bottles in my house. <laughs> no, nobody's allowed to use them because they just accumulate and it's, it's terrible. Um, and I'm just trying to be really conscious. I bought something in the store the other day and the person, the saleswoman was wrapping it up in a nice long plastic garment bag. And I said, no, 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 let's just not wrap it up. I don't, I don't need it wrapped up. I can just take it home without the plastic. And so I just trying to be super, super conscious of plastic and when plastic bags come into my house to make sure they're reused in some fashion or another. And since I have dogs, that's, um, (laughs) that's, that's actually pretty easy to at least reuse the plastic bags. So I'm trying to be more conscious in that way. I don't know if that's a big enough thing. Yeah, I think that, well, I I have one question is a lot of people say plastic bottles are recyclable and they think, well, no big deal. So you don't think that. I don't think that, but a lot of people do. I don't know if they are or if they are not, but if you drink out of plastic water bottled waters, then, and you have everybody in your house do that, you have a full garbage can of plastic bottles. So whether or not they are recyclable or not, you're creating just a lot of garbage. I don't, I don't know. if it can be recycled or not. So why create that? Why not just have a cup and use that instead? Yes, I agree. And surprisingly, many people don't, but hopefully that'll change. Uh, or I hope. Okay, yeah. So what I think what helps is to make it a smart goal. So not just to be aware, but I want to make it specific and measurable and time-bound. Do you think you could make it some, could specify something for a certain period of time? Let's see. Specify for a certain period of time. Hmm. That's complicated. I'm trying to think if I can really say I won't use plastic. And I think that's a little bit tricky. I don't think I can get to I won't use plastic. Making making it specific is a little harder than having the intention of reducing it. And I get it. It's supposed to be harder, right? But it is harder. I appreciate you thinking out loud, partly because I think it's more useful to the listeners to hear this process because then they hear that, oh, it's not so easy, but hopefully they'll also think a little bit. But it's not that hard either. I don't think, well, we'll see. And this specificity isn't supposed to make it harder, but just more easy to tell. Because if you just say, I want to lower it, then I think it's harder to achieve a goal that's less specific. Right. Well, I could give a specific goal that I won't use plastic unless it is absolutely the only option. But then is that specific enough? Because it can be, when, when is it the only option, right? So that's, that's complicated. I can't eradicate the use of plastic because again, I have dogs and other, other things. So it's, it's, it's tricky. So I think of something other than plastic that I could do. <laughs> I'm also thinking about the plastic is that if you said that, it's not necessary that virtually not many people actually achieve full on what they said. Like someone, someone might say they're not going to have meat for a month and then they visit their mom and the mom makes a steak and they're like, well, all right, I make an exception for my mom. 
I have a better goal, which is a totally mm-hmm. different take. That sometime in the next year, and it may take me a while, but one of the questions I've gotten asked as I've gone around and speak, spoken to people is, how real are renewables? How do we tell? What are people doing? What are, what are the most interesting things that are out there? How cost competitive are they? So I will take on at least a story where I really dig into something, whether it's the Apple Wind Farm, whether it's something a private equity firm told me they were doing in Costa Rica, whatever it is, but really look at something that is that is attempting to make the transition to renewables. So at least to help to try to provide a little bit of an answer around that. I would love to read that article, especially for someone who just said, I'd like to look at the numbers and see what really goes on underneath because so many things are, it's so easy to make something look really green and kind of fool around with it when it's like the wind farm. There's this magazine, online magazine, which I love called Low Tech Magazine. And he analyzes these things and like the embedded carbon in the windmills is like a lot. And someone to go into all this depth and so forth is, and I think, I think the industry would like it because they don't know the numbers either. And the more public it becomes, yeah, there's a bit of pain of like ripping the bandaid off, but then eventually the accountability sinks in and leaders, I think, like accountability, effective leaders. And based on what you, what I read that you wrote and the Enron stuff, I feel like you'd be, you'd do a thorough job, an effective job. Okay. So that sounds like a good, that sounds like a good goal because then I can do something that's measurable. I can deliver a product that is really looking at something and saying, how does this, how does this work? And what is it doing? And, and that will help, that will help hopefully at, at the best of all worlds to provide a guide to how quickly this transition is coming about. So I can't wait to read the article. <laughs> so then I guess we'll get in touch when the article comes out, because I'd love to hear the story about how it went or actually when it comes out or maybe somewhere along the way, if you feel like uh, now's a good time to talk to Josh and his listeners about, about how things went. So Okay. So to wrap up, is there anything I didn't ask that is that uh, you wish I'd brought up? No, no. You have such an interesting approach to this that it was it was actually fascinating to see my work through your lens, which is which is one of the fun things about putting something like this out there because people bring different lenses to it. So it's really interesting. Well, I'm glad that that worked out. <laughs> I like my perspective too. I'm curious about the other, so I'll look at, at other reviews and things. And is there anything to, that you'd want to say directly to the listeners that might be, I mean, you might've just answered it, but anything else to say? Well, I, I think, and I guess this is maybe perhaps a little too much of a plug for my book, but not even necessarily my, my book. I think it's really important to, in modern life, it's really easy to separate ourselves from the production of energy and only to use it and not to think about how it's produced. And whether you are pro or con, whether you consider yourself an environmentalist or not, it's an important issue to to understand because it's all of our future um, in a way that is deeper and more important than, say, you know, the latest app to help you deliver your laundry coming out of Silicon Valley. <laughs> so I think it's, I think it's important for people to, to understand this and, and, and grapple with it. And maybe if there's not a national energy policy and, and given Congress, it's debatable whether there will be or should be, but if there's not, if people actually have views on this and are thoughtful about it, then maybe we don't need one. Maybe, maybe the will of the people can take the place of that. Yeah. It's really important. I, yeah. I'm going to tag onto that something from a reader's perspective, which is that it's a readable book. It's not that long, despite having all, all of what it has in it. And despite all the depth, it's accessible. I mean, there are a few, a few times I'd have to read a paragraph a couple of times, but that's because the depth was in there. And yeah, it's accessible and readable. So, um, well, Bethany, thank you very much. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.
I can't wait to read her article. Usually I press people that their commitment should have some measurable environmental effect, but I'm so interested in seeing this article. And as far as I know, it doesn't exist that I really want to read it. I didn't press her on that. Since the recording, I visited Houston. This background helped, as did her personal connection. She set me up with an energy research company there, and it was very useful for me to talk to them. If you want to understand this critical part of the United States, becoming an oil exporter again, and what may happen next, you will appreciate this book. Fracking also came up in my conversation with Michael Heaney, also on this podcast, who pointed out how much new plastic oil companies are going to produce as a result of this fracking boom. This is the world that we live in. This is, along with population, how much greenhouse gas we effectively take from out of the ground and put in the atmosphere, one of the major influences on our environment. As a side note, I also recommend, especially if you like pictures, to look at our article on JLo and A-Rod. But that's an aside. Really, I recommend her book. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse, and living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and Living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.